So I don't see any tinfoil hats. I told you last week, bring your tinfoil hats. We're going to get into the weirdness now. I guess I'd have been a little freaked out if somebody did bring a tinfoil hat. We're doing a passage today that anybody with any sense at all would skip. But we've had such fun with it in the past, I thought we'd try it again. (laughs) And and, and I don't want to offend anyone. I really don't. But at the same time... uh, I really hate to skip a verse, especially if it's a tough one. So we're going to wade through it with with some understanding that we'll get into later. Uh, and I guess if I forget to say it later, the plan of salvation is not at risk here. I, I'll give you three interpretations. I may even mention a fourth interpretation of this passage if, if I can't stop talking. Uh, but none of these will affect whether you're saved or not. You're saved if you bow your heart to God and surrender yourself to him and confess your sins and ask him to allow his son Jesus Christ to save us and come into our life. And if you pray that prayer wherever you are, I was laying in my bedroom in 1971 in Eastern Shore, Kent Island, Maryland, and I prayed a very simple prayer and God completely changed my life. And if you pray that prayer in Jesus' name, God promises that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So whatever you believe about this passage uh, doesn't really affect anything other than how much you can trust the Bible, which is the reason I want to kind of go through it. It's tedious. If it's half as troublesome as the morning has started out, uh, it either tells me that God, uh, the Holy Spirit or the devil doesn't want me talking. I'm not sure which. But uh, these electronic problems are not new to us, are they? We kind of fumble around with them every other Sunday. But, uh, so the passage reads like this, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the earth. Now, for those of you that haven't been with us, we're in Genesis. We're at the beginning of Genesis, uh, right after the fall. Cain has gone out. The world is multiplying, estimated as many as near a billion people on the earth at the time of the flood. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that doesn't mean that just started happening. It said in the beginning, sons and daughters all along. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Excuse me. And they took wives of all which they chose. Um, I, I don't think any of you speak Hebrew. I certainly don't. But I wanted to see... The words, now if you're going to read that, you've got to read from the right, your right to your left. Uh, and it says, uh, that Saul, it came to pass the daughter's born, that Saul, the sons of Elohim, so when you see God, that's Elohim, they saw the daughters of Adam. Now, it's, it's significant. So you just want you to see that the, it's the sons of Elohim, and it's the daughters of Adam. It's not the daughters of man, although Adam is the word for man. There's nothing wrong with the translation. It's just that you understand that this this is not really referencing mankind as much as it is Adam, and that's significant. We talk about family lines, and we'll get into that. Uh, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he shall also flesh. His day shall be as 120 years. Now, some people say this is a point where lifespans were shortened. I don't believe that. I, I believe that the, life, the, the lifespans were sorted, 
shortened only because of the results of the fall and the flood and lifespans were shortened as bacteria and diseases and the breakdown of the hum human genetic code began to uh, weaken. Uh, I think really what God is saying is here is I'm going to stop trying with these fools and in 120 years I'm going to wash them off the face of the earth. So I think what he's talking about is a pronouncement of judgment uh, regarding the flood. Uh, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and, and they bear children unto them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Now your word there for giants is the Hebrew word nephil and in plural it's nef I say nephilim, some people say nephilim, I say nephilim uh, and uh, the, the word for nephilim, nephilim really means fallen ones. Uh, Figuratively, it means a bully, a tyrant, or a giant. All right? And at issue here is, what are the definitions of these words, and what is the interpretation of it based on what these words mean? And, and, and it's an incredible problem, <laughs> because we don't even know what language they were speaking before the flood. I mean, Dr. Skinner knows it was Hebrew. I mean, he's convinced it was Hebrew. And uh, the names kind of reflect it. And uh, I think you were telling me uh, Arnold Frochtenbaum believes it was Hebrew. And I think the roots and the character of the names and, and, and the, the way things were structured, it indicated that it probably was Hebrew. But we don't know what their Hebrew was like compared to the new Hebrew, except what Noah and his family brought across on the flood. Uh, it makes sense that uh, Noah would speak Hebrew. It makes sense that uh, this thing would be carried over. So it, it's, kind of, it's kind of a question, well, what did the Hebrew words mean? You know, what, what do these words mean? And that, that's the thing we don't know. I mean, it, if you read this, like if you were to take an old living Bible, back when I was first saved, I, I got a little New Testament of living Bible because I couldn't read the King James. It was just like gobbledygook. And I, I'd read the living Bible in my break. I was a teacher. And I, rather than sit in the teacher's lounge and smoke cigarettes, I sat in my office and read scriptures. But then you get to something like this and you think, boy, Whoa, that's a little freaky. Uh, what, what are they saying here? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Now, some of you know the Septuagint. Um, the Septuagint LXX just means the 70. And the Septuagint just means the 70. And when, when Israel went into captivity in Babylon about 500, 500 or 600 years before Christ, uh, their next generation lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And that's where the Akkadian came from. And... Uh, it was kind of a mixture of their Hebrew and, and the pagan languages around them. And they lost it. So at, after they returned, they hired 70 Hebrew scholars to rewrite the Old Testament Hebrew in Greek. So what you have here is a 300-year-before-Christ interpretation of what these scholars thought these words meant. So, I mean, it's, it's not proof of anything, but it does, in fact, tell you this is what they thought 300 years before Jesus was born. Now the giants, and that in the Greek is gigantes, which we we don't translate, we just transliterate, we just take the Greek word and make it sound like English. Uh, well, now the giants were upon the earth in those days, and after that, when the sons of God were wont to go into the daughters of men, they bore unto them, those were the gigantes, the giants of old, the men of renown. Uh, were they giants? Well, we really don't know. But 300 years before Jesus, they used this word. This is, but this is 1,800 years after the flood. This is a long time removed from this event. Um, there may be no connection between it. So we, we really don't know. If you want to back up a few, 
a few hundred or maybe even a thousand years. You back up a little bit more. And this is when the spies spied out the land. This is before Israel got in the land. This is before they had trouble with uh, Saul and David and Babylon and Greece. And it's before all of that, you know. And they brought an evil report of the land which had searched into the children of Israel. They were in the land of the Canaanites. They were searching it out to see how bad it was. And they went into the land and the land through which we have gone to search it. It is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. This is the evil report of the ten spies. And all the people that we saw were men of great stature. So, I mean, in their mind, you know, of course, they were probably, what, five foot two? And the guys might have been six foot. I mean, we don't know. We really don't know. I mean, I see this stuff on Facebook where they find these skeletons that are eight feet tall. And, and they, they find these burial beds that are eight feet long. And I don't know if you can believe anything on Facebook. I, I'd almost have to go see it myself before I'd believe it. I know Cindy has a, one of those skeletons that's like 12 feet tall in her front yard. And I think, ah, oh, the giants are here, you know. Anyway, and there we saw the giants. They're saying that after the flood, they saw the genetic remnants of this, this tribe that was flooded out, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. Well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, when I stand next to Clark, I feel like a grasshopper, <laughs> really. Uh, you know, I used to think I was tall until he came in the church. Uh, but then it says, and so were we in their sight. Well, I, they were kind of maybe assuming something. Uh, I don't know. You know, this was in the days of the wilderness wanderings. And, and of course, they would accept a literal interpretation of this verse. Uh, and it's important to notice that Greek and Roman mythology also has... Giants. They have incredibly strong, incredibly large, incredibly a race of great strength, if you will. Uh, aggressive, not necessarily gigantic in size. I want to see what my next note is there. I've already said that. That's all right. We'll go on. Better watch that clock. It'll be ticking. So we're back to that verse that, that is really... It's really the issue. Who are the sons of God? Beneha Elohim in Hebrew, the sons of God. And who are the daughters of men? There's a number of uh, interpretations of this. And as I've said, there are no critical issues involved here other than the interpretation of scriptures. And when you get into a language this old, you have to understand that words have multiple meanings. And context determines everything. And the attitude with which I read these scriptures will influence how I interpret them. And that's true for translators. I mean, if, if you were to search this passage out, you'll find, I, let me back up. I have two of my favorite graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary that I follow, Bob Diffenbaum and Stephen Cole. And I read Stephen, and he, he takes the giant view he takes the Nephilim as fallen angels. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll check what Bob says. And Bob says, no way, no way. These are the sons of Seth. So these are two of the most trustworthy commentators I know that can't agree on what these verses mean. So other than the fact that the question of scriptures, if, if whatever you believe about this destroys your attitude towards scriptures, you're, you're believing the wrong thing. It is an obscure passage. It has an unclear interpretation. It's translated from Hebrew that goes, goes so old that we don't, even, we don't even know that we know that it's Hebrew. So 
at issue today, of course, are who are the B'nai Elohim. Now, there are three interpretations of this that I want to share with you, uh, three main interpretations. The first is it's a myth. Just tear that page out of your Bible and throw it away. The second interpretation is that the B'nai Elohim is the godly line of Seth. Uh, and we'll go into this in some detail. And the third interpretation that you'll see, uh, well, it's saying that the generation of Seth abandoned their faith in order to marry beautiful women from the ungodly line of Cain. Now, if you think giant scares you, that scares me more. You know, that Christians got involved with other wives because they were beautiful. I mean, if that doesn't speak of our day, nothing does. Anyway, the third interpretation, the B'nai Elohim are fallen angels who took on human form. Didn't, didn't invade humans. They just took human forms as angels have been doing in the Old Testament all along. They don't seem to need to uh, inhabit a human body. They can just take on human form, apparently, at will, perhaps just the will of God, but at will. So the, the argument here is that they, they, uh, they took on human form and they uh, attempted to pollute the whole human race with a genetic abnormality. Uh, so there's your three main definitions. There is another one that I just read for the first time this week, and that is that the Beneha Elohim, the Nephilim, uh, are actually uh, dictators and tyrants that the, the sons of the B'nai, the children of the B'nai Elohim became the world's dictators. And I haven't spent enough time in that to even talk intelligently about it, but to me it certainly fits into the interpretation number two. Now the first one, it's a myth. Sounds like a myth, doesn't it? It kind of looks mythical. You know what they say, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Uh, and therefore it's a myth, you know. Just put this into your file, or, or better yet, the, the liberal would tell you, just tear that page out of your Bible, you know. Right along with the Greek gods, Paul Bunyan, and E.T. You know. Well, if the third interpretation is true, it is E.T., so we, well, we'll get to that. All right. Well, the problem with this is if you can't trust this passage, where do you stop tearing pages out of our Bibles? Uh, next we'll hear that Jesus' deity or his resurrection is a myth. I, uh, I remember witnessing to a couple one time, and the, the husband was listening, but the wife was very angry about the message of the gospel. And she stood there leaning against the doorway with her hand her hip, and she said, oh, that's, that's just bull. She said, uh, all this, this bloody religion stuff is foolishness. Uh, it's stupid. Our, our responsibility is to live a good life, and God will have to accept us. You know. She goes... To a fellowship that doesn't believe the scriptures. That's what happens. If you start teaching people that you can't trust the Bible, if you believe in your heart that you can't trust the Bible, then you have to interpret uh, what uh, would become very obscure passages in your own mind. Or we, or, or we could get to a point where I say, he really didn't die for our sins. It's up to us to live good lives. That's what my uncle told me just before he died. But if we can't trust the Bible, how do... How do we really know there's life after death? How do we know there's a God? How do we know any of this stuff if you can't trust the word of God? Now, you know, uh, what did I put here? If the Bible is trustworthy, well, then the Bible is worthy of our trust. I don't know why that keeps cutting that off. I've had that on there twice. The Bible is worthy of our trust. Um, to me, when I got saved, I did not believe the Bible at all. I, 
I read it a few times in Vietnam. I may have heard it preached. I would go to church most of the times trying to find a girl uh, but uh, or a free dinner. In Mississippi, we tried to, we had a church there that would preach that if you love the Lord, you take these poor starving sailors out for dinner. No one ever did, but I thought it was a great sermon myself. I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Here, take me out. But that never worked out. Uh, I didn't believe it until I was sitting in my bed that day and reading Hal Lindsey, and Hal Lindsey was telling me that God killed his son for me and that he died in my place and that all I had to do was call on him, confess my sin. I had no problem confessing my sin. I, I don't know how anyone could say they've never sinned. I, I don't. They're not even conscious if they don't think they've ever sinned. Uh, but I was well aware of my sin, and Jesus radically came into my life and changed me when I asked him to. I mean, my life just took a 180-degree turn. We're, Judy and Bill are here from Virginia, and we're re-watching The Chosen. And I love what Mary says to Nicodemus. She says, I can't explain it either. I just know that I was one way, and now I'm another, and the difference is him. There's really nothing you can explain. You, you can get into it theologically, but you, you don't understand the change in your life. But we're just radically different. Now, let me see where I'm at here. I'm, I'm trying to stay in pages on a thing here. What do we have up there? The second interpretation, the B'nai Elohim is speaking of the godly line of Seth. Now, this is what I've taught for many years in this church. Uh, these theologians see two lines developing, as I do, as we do. I mean, we've just gone through that. We also see in this chapters four and five. How strong is that paper? No, that's not too bad. Uh, we also see in this chapters four and five two generations: the generations of Seth, who was a replacement for, of course, Abel, and the generations of Cain. And these theologians are convinced that the sons of God equal the, the godly sons of Seth. And the daughters of Adam are the ungodly daughters of Cain. Now, I'll get into, I don't understand why that would be written this way if this were true. But I, I think this is really the most conservative and sane and modern view you could take. I don't think you're, you're hurting yourself if you take that view at all. Uh, the other view is just so spooky, it's just creepy. It's acceptable to modern thinking. There's a clear development of two lines of Genesis, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Later, New Testament Christians are commanded not to marry unbelievers. This is the same strategy. If you remember ba Balaam with the talk, talking donkey, you remember that story? It's the same strategy he used against Israel in the wilderness, and it was very successful for getting a lot of Jews killed. All right. Now the question is, as we go through this passage, why did God flood the earth? What happened to cause God? Because he already said it. My spirit will not always strive for man, yet it will live 120 years. What happened to cause the flood? And I think your interpretation of this, this passage of scripture, will help you to understand, or at least come to a position where you believe you understand why God caused the flood. Because, I mean, that was pretty radical, right? Just kill everybody. Just kill them all. Kill them all. That's what we said in Vietnam. And let God sort them out. Now, 
To me, this interpretation raises a few questions. Not that all of the interpretations don't raise a few questions. So this is going to be slanted towards this particular presentation. It's going to be slanted towards the fallen angel theory, and I'm going to share with you why. But the primarily, primary reason why is probably because I listen to Chuck Missler too much, and he likes weird. You know, so I probably, been, I probably need to find different commentators to read. You know. But this interpretation, this uh, sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain, raises a few questions that I've never heard answered. Uh, first of all, every Old Testament reference, except for one, translates Beneha Elohim as angels. Uh, it's always translated as angels in the Old Testament. And you should really let the scriptures define scriptures. That's how they figured out how to interpret the book of the Revelation. They went to the book of Daniel and used Daniel to interpret the words in the book of the Revelation. And all of a sudden, the whole thing came together, started a whole new theological movement. Uh, there is one exception, and that's Adam, who's also called the Beneha Elohim. But he too, like the fallen angels, were direct creations, direct creations of God. We are not sons of God, well, until we're born again. We're not sons of God. We're sons of Adam. We're born with a fallen nature. I may be getting the house out of myself. Who are the daughters of Adam? Why aren't they the daughters of Cain? See, that doesn't make sense. Unless it's using Adam in a collective sense of the fallen world, which, again, linguistically doesn't make any sense. It would have to include the ladies of the Sethites and the Canaanites, both. Now, I don't know if you're into spelling. I know Judy is. Uh, Canaanite is spelled wrong, uh, deliberately, because I think I made that word up. If you look up the word Canaanite, it has two A's instead of one, C-A-N-A-A-N-I-T-E. But that's a reference back to Noah's son, Ham. Actually, Noah's grandson, Cain, but Canaan. But it's, it's the Hamitic line. It's not the Canaanic line. <laughs> I'm making that word up, too. Not the line of Cain, because that entire generation was swallowed up in the flood. But anyway, it just wonder why it says the daughters of Adam and why it doesn't say the daughters of Cain. It also assumes that all Sethites were believers and all Canaanites were unbelievers, which is very, very unlikely. With all these believing Sethites around, why were there only eight on the ark? So I think, well, what's going on here? Were there no daughters of God? Were, were, could not the sons of God find the daughters of God and marry them if that language was? It's just the language doesn't make sense. Also, to me, is this saying that if an unbeliever marries a believer, both are now lost? That's a little scary. I mean, I've always thought that if an unbelieving, I mean, a believing husband marries an unbelieving wife, there's like an 82% chance that the wife will get saved. But in this case, if a, if a believing husband marries an unbelieving wife, your entire generation is wiped out in a flood. And you think, whoa, this is not teaching any theology that I'm interested in. And the other question is, will God destroy our whole world when believers marry only for physical beauty? I certainly hope not. The answer may be yes. I don't know, you know. Plus, you know, anytime it's a new view, you've got to have a question of it. Of course, 4th century A.D. is not exactly brand new, you know, uh, I mean, truthfully, 1,600 years old. Uh, but Julius Africanus uh, came up with this, and Augustine accepted it, and that's how it got popular. 
Of course, the Catholic Church wrote that into their theology, and when we split, we Protestants split from the Catholic Church, we carried this interpretation with us. And it's safe, and you're all right believing it. It's okay. It just has some threats in it to me about, does it matter who I marry? You bet it does. Does it matter how pure I keep my family? You bet it does. Does it matter where my kids go to school? You bet it does. I mean, there's some implications to this that are actually more frightening than the idea of fallen angels marrying women. You know, anyway, that's enough of that. The third interpretation, the Baneha Elohim refers to fallen angels. Now, these are not demons. Uh, I'm misorizing now here. Uh, that's a made-up word, too. Uh, but the natural meaning of the text is these are angels. These are angels that rebelled against God. And they have all the powers of angels, and they just, they just uh, were kicked out of heaven. And they came down to earth, and they were looking for something to do. And they thought, man, these women are beautiful, you know. And they took on human form. That's that's the natural meaning of the text. Uh, all other Old Testament references, I've already said that, except Beneha Elohim, which also is said of Adam. He too is a direct creation. Now we become the Beneha Elohim. The Weas of God when we're born again. So when God does a born again work in your heart, you have become a child of God. But that's a direct that's another act of direct creation. I mean, I was lost. I had no life at all in me. And the Holy Spirit came in my life and, and resurrected, gave me a new life, new birth. He created a whole new Bob Henley in nineteen seventy one, August nineteen seventy one. That was an act of creation. The old Bob is dead. See, a complete act of creation. Which is kind of what the words mean. In this New Testament, the idea of direct creation continues, but only after the new birth. As many as received them to them, gave you power to become the Weostantheon, the sons of God. Okay, I went through that. Third century B.C., the Septuagint translates it that way. I've got like 11 of these, so I want to go through them quickly. Josephus, uh, some of you are familiar with him. He wasn't a believer. He was a, a practicing, uh, no, he wasn't. He was just a, a backslidden Jew. Who worked for Rome? Anyway, his his interpretation was that when he talks about this, was that they're angels. Um, the Book of Enoch, which we don't believe, it was written actually by uh, a couple of commissioned uh, rabbis, uh, and we don't we didn't include it into our text except to look at translations, linguistics, and history. Uh, so it's not in your Bible. But when it translates this word as angels, uh, so we take it historically. Now, in the New Testament, boy, that's tiny. Uh, looked a lot better when I was sitting three inches away from it. Uh, Jude says this, which is a little freaky. Uh, and the angels, uh, which kept not their first estate. Now, does that mean they left heaven to come to earth? Or does it mean their, their, their corporal estate as angelic beings and took on human estate as physical beings? We don't know. It just says Jude said left not their first estate. He assumed that we knew. We'd like a footnote, Jude. Give us some details. But they left their own habitation, have reserved an everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Now, if you want to believe the uh, B'nai Elohim as angels and cohabiting with women viewpoint, uh, you believe that only those angels that got involved in this are the ones that are chained up. And they're, they're chained up in a place where God is actually going to release them in the days of the tribulation. So they're not dead. They're just 
held and God's going to turn them loose. And, you know, most of you are aware that Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And then he goes on and describes what life was like before the flood and what life is going to be like before what we call the rapture or the tribulation period, you know. Now, if you don't believe that viewpoint, you almost have to accept the fact that all the fallen angels uh, are chained up. The angels which kept not their first estate, that is, if you believe the interpretation that they left heaven and came to earth, you know, if you believe that interpretation, then you have to say, well, it kind of sounds like he locked them all up. But if he locked them all up, what's going on in Washington, D.C.? It's what I can't figure out, because I guarantee you there's somebody down there messing things up. And it's not just Washington. There's all over the world. And that's what Paul said. There's there's uh, principalities and powers that we're dealing with. And that's what the fallen angels are. They're principalities and powers. Ranks of angels. Anyhow, I'm not trying to turn you into a tinfoil hat wearing crazy person. But I do have these questions. Now, this is 2 Peter 2.4. This is the eighth argument arguing in favor of the angelic interpretation. And for those of you that believe the second, well, if you believe the first, that it's a myth, I think you need to challenge yourself to read the Bible. If you believe the second, I think you're safe. You don't need, you probably just should stop listening to me. Uh, but the eighth argument against the second argument, not against the first, is for if God, this is Peter writing, for if God spared not the angels of sin, well, that had to be the fallen angels, right? But cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment and spared not the old world but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. We're going to get into the flood in, in a week or two following. Bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, Wait a minute. What caused the flood? That's really the question here. What caused the flood? You hear it right there. Whatever they did caused the flood. See? Whatever they did. Preacher, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you know, this, this is where you go to prison, but whatever they were doing to Sodom and Gomorrah was related in some ways to whatever they were doing in, in the fallen angels. So you have this this hint that there's something uh, sexual going on here between the two. There's a connection there that no one, I've never heard anyone talk about. And I, there's a good reason for that, because you talk about it, you go to jail. You know, as turning the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemn them with the overflow, making them examples of those that afterwards should live ungodly. Uh, there's supposed to be a threat there for us that we should, in fact, live godly lives. And delivering just Lot, there's our rapture, Vexed with a filthy conversation. Now, when you read conversation, you have to understand that word means manner of life. All right. The word means manner of life. Vexed with the filthy manner of life of the wicked. It's quite the passage. And then he says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So we're talking about we're talking about the flood. See, he destroys the wicked. He raptures Enoch out and the, 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 the family of Noah is preserved in the ark. So you have this, this three-step process where you, you take out the believers, you protect the Jews, and you destroy the wicked, which is exactly what he did in the Old Testament. People say, well, God wouldn't do that. Well, he's already done it. What do you mean he wouldn't do it? He's already done it. He's done it twice. Uh, anyway, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust in the day of judgment. So in this New Testament passage, we have angels, the flood, Sodom, Gomorrah, all tied together. Now, if you know your Bible, you're thinking, but Jesus said angels don't marry. That's true. That's Matthew 22, 30. Jesus says in, in, in heaven, angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's true. That's true. But it also seems like in heaven, 
All the angels are men, you know. Secondly, it doesn't say they can't marry. Jesus says they don't marry. Now, maybe he meant they can't marry. I don't know. Maybe angels can't do it. But the angels certainly fooled the men of Sodom. They thought they were men. See, And people who have entertained angels, Paul tells us, have done it unawares. They thought they were men. So we, we can't, can't argue from the absence of Scripture on that. Well, that's eight. Here's nine. This line of Seth is a new interpretation, which I've already told you. Julius Africanus, Augustine liked it. Catholics loved it. Protestants picked it up, taught it to me in seminary, and then I taught it to you. All right. Ten, ancient cultures have a mythology of a time when the gods came down. You know, I, I, in college we had to study Greek mythology, and it always seemed pretty whacked out, probably about as whacked out as this message seems to you. Uh, but uh, it's kind of curious that they're not the only culture that has this uh, antiquity, this belief in antiquity that gods came down and cohabited with women and had great children. So the truth is out there somewhere, you know. And if you don't believe, just turn on PBS. They have ancient aliens on 7,200 times a week. Uh, and you can see all the, all the junk that they've come up with that. Yeah. Hercules is said to be one of these children. The judgment of the flood was an extreme measure, and I think that's probably one of the questions you have to ask yourself, regardless of what interpretation you take. Why did God destroy the whole world? I mean, it had to be an extreme solution to an extreme problem. That's the argument, you know. Uh, and then finally, uh, my spirit will not always strive with man. The word strive there means do is the Hebrew word do, but we don't really know what it means. But it seems to imply, based on our translation of a word that we don't know the root of, which is like, you know, throwing darts at a wall, uh, uh, it seems like it sounds like he's saying that he's going to stop trying to save them. Yeah. It is as if whatever happened in the old world got these people in a position that they're beyond saving. And the argument, of course, Missler and uh, the others, weirdos, uh, is that this was a satanic effort to contaminate the whole human race. And by contaminating the whole human race, it was impossible for God to bring his Messiah and destroy the kingdom of Satan and win. So that's, that's sort of the argument. When, when we get past this, you will notice that any woman in the Messianic line is going to have trouble giving birth or getting pregnant. So Satan has not stopped trying to stop the birth of the Messiah, but this may have been a worldwide attempt to pollute the human race. If it is, it's genetic. And if it's genetic, you need to be careful with genetics, right? Prelude to the flood, God is quoting, saying, for that he is also flesh. There's a phrase in there, and it means altogether, not also. It's not spirit, also flesh. It's altogether flesh, totally corrupted. Now, in contrast, Noah, we'll get to him next week, is said to be perfect in all his generations. But perfect not in a moral sense, perfect in the sense of a sacrificial offering. That is without spot or blemish. So if there was a genetic, a comprising of the genetic human code, it would be saying that Noah was not comprised. I don't think that's the right word, compromised. Is this saying Noah was not contaminated with the genetic aberration? We don't know. But that's just one interpretation. One. 
God says days will be 120 years. I told you this. This is that the flood will come in 120 years. So what happens is Noah starts building the boat. I've been building my boat. Feels like 120 years too. You know, been going on forever. So this is just as I look at this this time, and and as I say, I've, I've taught it. I've never taught the mythological view uh, because I. I believe that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus took the Bible literally. People say, why are you a literalist? Because Jesus took the Bible literally. And, and when he deliberately, when Jesus set out to fulfill scripture and the prophet of the Old Testament said, behold, your Messiah comes riding on the foal of a donkey. Jesus looked for a foal of a donkey. He didn't look for a horse and say, that's good enough. I mean, you look at every Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, and everyone is fulfilled literally. So to me, the mythological interpretation does too much damage to the authority of scriptures. It ultimately, and I remember Dr. Beeman saying this in seminary, it doesn't matter what approach you take to deny an interpretation, a literal interpretation in your scriptures. It doesn't matter what page you tear out. But no matter what page you tear out, you will eventually tear out the one that says Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It all leads to the deity of Christ uh, because Jesus believed the Bible. So it doesn't matter. when. By the time you get done, the only thing that's going to be left is, is, is a, a depressing history of the Jewish people. Uh, the godly line marrying the only guide interpretation speaks to the survivability of a culture without Christ, and we're in that crisis right now. Our culture is not going to survive without Christ. If you, if that's absolute truth. Uh, you, it's interesting to see, uh, I can't forget, remember his name, the guy on, on the internet all the time, the Jew, always talking about God and the survivability of a culture. We're not going to make it without the, the Jewish Christian theology. We, we, we're not going to make it. It also places family in the center of our hope of, of communal stability. The strength of every nation is in the families. It tells us, if you believe this line, and I do, I believe this is true, it tells us we must take more care in whom we choose to marry and how we choose to live and how we focus the purpose of our lives. Because it's not just us. I've said this a thousand times. When we sin, we drag our whole community into our sins. And when we stand righteous, we lift our whole community up in righteousness. How we live is absolutely critical to the survivability of our culture. If we're not at the end, if we're at the end, then you better be ready to go when Jesus says, come up here. You're going to hear a trumpet. You're going to look up. You're going to see a window. Jesus is going to say, come up here. You better be ready to go. Don't don't be like Lot's wife. Say, well, I got to go check the boat and bail it out before I leave. You know, just look up and go. Look up and go. Let God take care of the rest. Now, the other view, the interpretation number three, fallen angels cohabitating with beautiful women. It's weird. I know. I know. But it tells me that we're in a life and death struggle with forces outside our visible world. And I believe that's true. I believe that's true. I believe Paul believed it was true as well. I believe other scriptural writers believe it was true. We're in a life and death struggle with forces outside of our visible world. Joe Biden isn't our enemy. All right. Well, that's hard to say, but I mean... <laughs> But he's not our enemy. We're in, a, we're in a life and death struggle with forces outside of our visible world. There really is an ET out there. It's not 
some spaceman. It's a fallen angel, and it's a demonic world. Trusting our gut, our flesh, when deciding whom to marry or how to live is a very, very bad idea. You know, I, I remember driving up to my wedding, and I had this brand-new cushion just gnawing in my gut. And the only way I kept driving was to tell myself that I believe God wanted me to marry this woman. That was the only way I could keep driving because I was really, I was really thinking about turning around. You know, anyway, we need to follow God's guidance and trust the Holy Spirit to bring us true discernment. Because we live in a world of lies. Anyway, we cut it, whether you believe number two or number three, uh, the strength of the church, the strength of the community, the strength of the nation, the strength of all of God's world is established in the strength of our individual families. That's, that's the underlying message of all this. The, the first is kind of important to me is that you know you can trust your scriptures. But the second is the failure here is in the family. And it's vital that we take family as our priority, the most important thing we do, not our work, not our children. None of this other stuff is the most important thing we do. It's the family. It's the family. God's will for my house, God's will for my wife, God's will for my children, the education of my children, the upbringing of my family, being involved in my community. That's what matters. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for this time, and I apologize for going over. I thank you that uh, it appears things are working. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Rob's got a picture up. He's got a smile on his face, so I can't tell whether it's working or not. But they haven't hung up, so I think they're all still there. But, Lord, we thank you for this time together. My prayer is that no one, no one, within the sound of my voice, puts off their relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that they would bow their heads if they haven't before, even now. And say, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. Come into my life and save me, and I will follow you. And Father, I know that if I'll pray that prayer in the name of Jesus, based on your promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, based on that promise, I know they will be saved. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.